Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, you may notice that I've been missing in action for quite a while, and I'm going to be talking about that in this podcast. And if you don't want to hear about what I've been up to, just fast forward about 10 minutes till we get on to the interview with Darren and Amanda about their sales. This is going to be the second episode with that interview. But what have I been up to? Well, I've been up to <laughs> building yeah, I went sailing this summer. I told you the uh, the issues I had with sailing. I never actually went sailing, did a lot of work on the boat, and uh, put the boat in the water, did some work on the engine, replaced the injectors. And I brought back a couple of the injectors that were replaced to have them tested and decide whether I wanted to rebuild them or not. The injection place, the diesel injection place that I took them to, tested them and they said they did definitely need to be replaced he said uh and he could rebuild them it was about 150 dollars to rebuild them but i decided not to rebuild them because uh, the original injectors lasted me for well since about 1982 up until this year and i thought well if these injectors last that long i probably won't be around to worry about replacing them again so i didn't bother rebuilding them it's not something I'd do while underway anyway. And if I need to replace the injectors, I'd have it done at a uh, at a marina. But I got back from sailing and uh, pretty much immediately started the construction of my garage. Now, I've told you about the ranch. This is a garage up at the ranch, and it's a pretty big garage. It's 65 feet wide by 40 feet deep. And I'm just going to give you some advice. If you decide to build a steel building like I did, don't do what I did. I designed this to be a, to look a lot like a barn. I wanted to have a barn look. And by do so so I designed this garage. I sent the plans up to my friend who's my my builder. And I said, "Take a look at this. Let me know what you think." He said, "Oh, it looks great." So then I went ahead and contracted with the uh, steel manufacturer to design the engineering drawings. After that, then I had to go through the process of getting my building permit. And, uh, and of course, I had to pay $9,000 for the engineering for the building permit. Once the building permit came back, then I, uh, I went ahead and ordered the steel, and it took about six weeks to get the steel in place. So this was all done prior to me going sailing last summer. So I'd already ordered the steel building. And then my builder had a delay on a project he was working on, so he couldn't get to it right away, so he delayed the actual start of construction by about about a month. And then once we started building the building, I realized all the mistakes I had made in the design of this building. It looks beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's up. But it cost me at least $100,000 more than it should have, and I'll tell you the mistakes I made that if you decide to build a steel building, you might want to avoid. First of all, I wanted two-foot overhangs. Where I'm at, we have big snow loads, and the snow slides off, and it builds up, and I wanted to have overhangs so the snow would slide off the roof 
away from the uh, away from the steel building. Well, that costs a lot. If you start looking at steel buildings when you're driving around, you'll find that most steel buildings have no overhang. And the reason they have no overhang is it costs a lot to put on those overhangs. There's a lot of little components that go into that, as well as the labor to install those little components. Secondly, I wanted a big building, and I actually wanted to build a second floor into it, but the building department would not let me build a second floor. They said it was too many square feet to begin with. It's 2,600 square feet. They said, no, you can't build a uh, second floor. By that time, it was too late. I'd already pretty much designed it in, so I had to eliminate that. But that was part of the reason I had such a a barn-like roof. So I could actually put a second floor in the barn area. Uh, The top of the roof is about 30, I think about 32 feet high off ground level, and there's plenty of room to build a second floor in there for storage or office or whatever I want to. But the city or the county, the wonderful county said, no, you can't do that. So by that time, it was too late. I'd already paid for the uh, engineering drawings. I'd gone through the inspection process. I'd literally spent a year going through a variance request and a uh, a variance request and then a, a, a uh, another request. So literally to get to the building permit, it took me over a year and about $1,000 in extra fees to the wonderful county to do what I want to do. And I don't think I need to really go into that detail on that. But anyway, continuing on with what you don't want to do if you decide to design a steel building. If you want a big building like 65 feet wide by 40 feet deep like I did, don't put that barn look in. Just make it a clear span. It's easier easier to design. The engineers can do it easily. You don't have as many pieces to cut. You're not going to get the second floor in there like I wanted to, and it won't look like a barn, but it'll be just a, uh, yeah, an easier building to build. Next thing, don't put windows in. All the windows take a lot of work. I have a lot of windows in my building. It looks great, lets a lot of light in, but every window you put in means the, the builders have to cut around that window and also put in all the molding and flashing that goes around that window. It, it entails a lot of work. Had I known this, I wouldn't have designed the building the way I did. I've learned a lot. <laughs> the trouble is I learned this lesson, but I won't have the uh, opportunity probably in my lifetime to apply these lessons to another building because I don't think I'll be building another steel building. Anyway, it took about more than three times or actually closer to four times as long to actually build the building as my builder had anticipated. It's up. It looks great. I don't have the garage doors in yet. I ordered the garage doors over six months ago. I just talked to the the company today and they're hoping to deliver them next week and i'm doing this podcast on uh, october i think 26th 2022 so that's what i've been doing my builder pulled off the project about uh, about three weeks ago and i've been doing the electrical rough electrical wiring before i put the cement down i laid a lot of conduit underneath the floor so I could have the long runs going under to the floor instead of way up and over the top of the ceiling and back down. 
and I've been doing the rough electrical wiring. I got a bid from the electrician, and it was a lot more than I expected. So I said, okay, what can I do uh, to save myself some money on this? And uh, he said, well, you can do some of the rough work. So I've been doing that. It's yeah, I know how to do this. This is stuff that I've done many times in the past. So I know what needs to be done. I'm not actually wiring up the receptacles or the switches. And I'm only working on the main level. When, when I, the electrician comes back, he'll be putting in all the lights because he'll have a lift to be able to get up to the roof or up to the ceiling of the uh, of the shed, of the garage, of whatever you want to call it, the barn, the shed, the garage, the whatever you want to call it. So he's going to need a lift to be able to put in the lights. And I'm hoping, like I say, the garage doors will go in hopefully next week. So that has taken up a lot of my time, which is basically taken away any time for putting out a podcast. The few podcasts I've done have been basically when somebody's reached out to me and said, okay, we'll work with your schedule so you can get it done. The other thing I've been working on is preparing for my Atlantic crossing. I'm going over in January to bring my boat across the Atlantic back to the Caribbean if you went to the website, medsailor.com, there's a page there on the Atlantic crossing, and I was actually looking for crew to join me. As it stands right now, I've got the first crew, which goes from Almiramar, Spain, down to Lanzarote in the Canary Islands. That one's full. The next crew, which goes from Lanzarote down to Mindelo in the Cape Verde Islands, I have one opening on that one still, and if you're interested, uh, write me, and, and probably within a week this will be filled up. I've got quite a few people that have expressed interest, and it's just going to be sort of a first-come, first-serve on this. And I, I'll need to get to know you before you do this. I don't want any medical issues. I don't want any special medical devices that you have to bring on the boat. I don't want any. I want you to be basically a healthy person. But if you are interested... Uh, Franz1, email me, Franz1, and that's the number one, at medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. And again, details on the the legs of the crossing are at medsailor.com. There's a menu item there called Atlantic Crossing you can take a look at. And then the last leg from um, Mindelo, Cape Verde Islands to Grenada has been filled up as well. So I only have one potential opening as it stands right now. So that's what's been taking up my time. <laughs> I have a full a full calendar, there's no doubt about that. And this uh, this garage has pretty much taken most of my disposable income, my a lot of my savings and a lot of my disposable income. I could have bought a pretty damn big yacht with the money I've spent on this uh, this garage. But I don't need a bigger yacht. My boat's plenty good for me. Anyway, Let's get on to the interview with with Darren and Amanda of OuterPassage.com. O-U-T-E-R Passage.com. Okay, we are recording now, finally, after a couple tries. So, Darren and Amanda, we're back online with you after uh, talking to you earlier in October. Uh, you've been to a couple boat shows since then. Tell us how they were, what you found out, what you did. Yeah, we had a great time. We were uh, you know, promoting our business and promoting what we do on, on the water. 
So we attended both the Newport and the Annapolis Sailboat Show. Um, we hosted people on board for, for day sales and sunset sales. Then, of course, just uh, made ourselves known in the whole yachting industry about uh, Outer Passage and, and what we do. So you would take people out for day sales, is that correct? That's right, yeah. We, we get a bunch of people on the boat and, and go out sailing in the, in the harbor there outside of Annapolis. Um, great sailing events like we had good wind on most days and the customers were just thrilled to see the performance of our of our trimaran and they particularly like most people that hadn't been on one uh, or a performance cruising boat for that matter or so, multi-hulls some of them right yeah we had a lot of monohull sailors so that was uh, really cool feedback to see how they felt about the boat so I'm on your website, and I've actually got, I haven't read it, but I wanted to ask you a couple questions uh, about what you're doing. Uh, number one, since I'm going to be doing an Atlantic crossing in, uh, in January, I'm curious as to what sort of a watch schedule you guys keep. I'm thinking three hours on, six hours off at night, and then fairly, fairly loose during the day because people are up and down during the day a lot. What, what do you guys do? Well, with three on, six off, I hope you have another crew member or two. <laughs> no, we don't. There's going to be three of us. There's three of us. So it's, <laughs> well, oh, okay. there, there we go. Yeah, there's going to be three, so that's, that works out. So three on, yeah, six three off. Hours, three hours on, six off is a good uh, good rhythm for three people, I think. Um, I know we like to keep a strict schedule just so that it doesn't get kind of loose about who's on watch i know people are usually up during the day but we like to know that someone's at the helm or you know on the, at the nav station watching um they're the ones in charge of that watch um but we would try to rotate but i think with three on six off you're rotating times anyway so it's not like uh when we were doing four on four off i'm not sure three three with four people oh three with four people didn't work out too well so we had to do a double uh, yeah, it just doesn't work out in that you get the same shift every time. So what we, you know, in other words, if you were lucky, you get sunsets, you got that every single time. So <laughs> that's not fair. Um, if you do have four people <laughs> and you're doing three on three off, what we do is uh, between nine and noon each day, someone runs a double and that just kind of keeps the rotation fresh. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Another question I had is, is insurance. How much more does it cost you in insurance to uh, to be, be to be taking guests on board? Is it a big deal, or is it not that much more as far as insurance goes? Um, it's not that much more. It all depends on the insurance company. Uh, you definitely have to find companies that are that are tailored to the work that we do. Um, and I'd say on average, it's ten to twenty percent more premium to. Uh, to do yeah what they call charter work okay okay i was just wondering that uh, that because i was debating on charging for my passage and i decided i just wasn't going to bother with it because i didn't want to deal with the insurance headaches if i actually charged for for crew positions on my atlantic crossing so i initially i thought i was going to then i backed away from that because i just didn't want to deal with the headaches and i want to be able to pretty much choose easily who who goes with me or not and uh, that just made it a little easier. So, but uh, that's good to know. So it's not that prohibitive. I would have expected more, quite honestly. Uh, yeah, yeah, not that prohibitive. Um, <clears throat> it all just depends on 
Oh, I mean, we can talk in detail about starting such a business, but you have flagging issues, crew issues, uh, you know, cabotage laws, Jones Act of the USA, all kinds of uh, interesting Headings. legal work to navigate around. Yeah. Are you a U.S. vessel then? I guess you are then. Yes, we are. U.S. Coast Guard. Okay. Okay. And so you both have your master's licenses, I assume, or at least your oh. six pack. Yep. yep. We are both masters. <laughs> masters of something. <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we we uh, last the, the last interview we sort of jumped from from Scotland because we were starting to run out of time uh, all the way over to Albania and we skipped all the uh, area from Scotland all the way down to the south of England and then over to. France and then along the Portuguese coast and through the Straits of Gibraltar. There's a lot of stories in there. Why don't you start out with some that you want to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let's just touch a little bit more about Scotland. That's kind of like our our second favorite cruising ground. Um, Yeah, we touched on the distilleries last time, but another, you know, one reason it's also very attractive for cruising is the scenery. Uh, you're in this island uh, setting of just these you know, beautiful kind of North Sea Irish, or sorry, Scottish uh, islands that are so beautiful. Um, and you get the weather that's associated with that, that region, but yet you have, you know, the protection of the islands. So, so it's challenging in sailing in terms of the weather, but uh, it's it's easy in that you have so many islands to duck in, hide through, uh, you know, anchor whenever a gale comes. And you know, even in the summertime, it's a gale usually comes uh, on clockwork, like once every five to seven days. So, was uh, wh- wh- where were the prevailing winds from then? Where were they all uh, over the place? No, the the, the prevailing are. But, you know, the the lows come through across the North Atlantic. So, you know, they kind of originate in in the Americas and and uh, in the summer months, they originate even higher up, like across Greenland and usually cut through like across Iceland and and down. So prevailing winds through a gale tend to be on the more like north or northwest quadrant. Um, Then you can also get a south and southwest quadrant wind as well. That would be, I would say, prevailing. Yeah, and I'm looking, zooming in on Google Earth on Scotland. It looks like there's plenty of little protected areas that you can get into. But uh, like a lot of fjords, anchoring is really deep. Were you able to get in there and anchor when you needed to to get out of the weather? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, most places it, it, it does tend to be deep in Scotland, but... You know, you just pick the right anchorage for your boat and in the weather. Um, I don't. I think we did have probably one of our deepest anchorages there was outside of Tobermory, a, a very popular old um, touristy spot. G- great to see, but yeah, that whole anchorage oh, that was, was really like difficult. Uh, it was almost uh, was it twenty meters or eighteen meters deep? Yeah, so, and then all the shallow spots were taken up from by moorings. So and they were all taken, so we couldn't even get a mooring there. Yeah. So, um, but the rest of Scotland, it tended to be fine with the the depth of of anchoring. We just uh, 
Yeah, we had a lot of chain on Panda Boat, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how much chain do you carry? I yeah, so on on the the last boat, the monohull, I think we had seventy. Uh, yeah, I want to say we had seventy meters of chain. That was honestly way too much. We never ever used all of that. Plus, we had like we another had rope road as well. Plus, we had another thirty meters of rope road on top of that. So we had you know a hundred meters of 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 uh, anchor yeah. road. <laughs> Uh, on this on this new boat, you know, this is a performance boat. So on this trimaran, we are going for much much lighter. So we have quite a lot less. We have ten. Uh, we have forty meters of chain. Yes, when we just bought it. So forty meters of chain plus uh, another ten meters. Ten to. 50, oh no, it was twenty. I think twenty. So we have like sixty of total rope, rope. rope. Yeah, spliced on. So. And that's Which been. Which we find that is is more than adequate. I think really thirty is an uh, is a fine amount to to keep things light. Yeah, because you have to worry about weight a lot more, I think, now, don't you? Yes, and uh, that's, I know it's a little side note from our travels, but, it, you know, we, in our monohull, we had the philosophy that, yeah, like, <clears throat> you need to carry everything and everything on board. Um, and honestly, even monohulls can benefit from reduced weight. Um, obviously it's not as much as like performance multi-hull that we're on now, but even that, that monohull we were on, we, we ditched a bunch of chain over the winter in England and noticed a huge performance difference, uh, in terms of light air performance. And when you're in a seaway, yeah, the upwind performance of the boat that the bow doesn't get buried nearly as often. Um, so yeah, I think. Uh, it's it's really easy just to say oh like you know I can put <clears throat> thousands of pounds on this boat and and yeah maybe in the right place down in the bilge and <clears throat> and aft but at the bow I think regardless of your boat type uh, keep it as light as possible you everyone will notice a performance difference yeah I noticed that on my boat and I've got about a hundred and hundred and fifty feet of five sixteenths high test chain up there and there's just nowhere there nowhere else to put it except right at the bow you know it's just not easy i'm you know when i do my crossing i may want to move some of it back to the to the between the bulkhead the next bulkhead back but boy it's hard to move it back it's difficult in my situation so yeah exactly we even talked about moving even just the anchor because if you're going on a long passage, you know, especially crossing the Atlantic, you could just move the anchor and that could make a big, big difference. Yeah, and that's probably what I'll do as a minimum is is just move the anchor back to the center of the boat. That'll help. Yeah, 35 pounds right out the uh, the very end makes yeah, a difference. Exactly. So, and I know, <laughs> yeah, I know my... I know when I was, uh, whenever I would walk on up forward on the boat on our, my first passage, I would always get doused, soaking wet, because my additional weight would make the make the bow go down, and I'd get wet, always get wet. Uh, fortunately, I don't have to go forward. When I did my original passage, I had a uh, hanked-on jib, so I had to pull down the jib at the end of the bowsprit, and uh, now I've got roller furling. I got to Gibraltar. I said, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to put roller furling on there, and I've been happy ever since. So, oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So, Scotland, where else did you enjoy in Scotland? Um, <clears throat> well, we can skip 
uh, on to Ireland, actually. We spent some time in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Uh, little little gem there for, for cruisers that are transiting that area. There is a marina, uh, the Belfast City Marina, that has amazing off, uh, like, uh, fall and winter rates that are just phenomenal. So <clears throat> we actually found it, like, um, you know, even though we were kind of cheap sailors living off the hook as everywhere, we stayed in that marina for a month because the monthly fee was almost worth it for uh, the free laundry and showers and mm-hmm. <laughs> everything and else that comes along with being attached to a dock next to a big city. Yeah, you're right. You're put right into the city and it was mm-hmm. right next to like the where the Titanic was built and all those um shipbuilding areas you're just right in the heart of it all it's really great to explore that that area of ireland yeah i'm zoomed in on it right now and i'm looking for this marine oh there it is right down in the corner there isn't it well actually there's a couple of them down there or there's one that it's right uh where is this right next to the uh then another another fantastic cruising area of northern ireland specifically is the Strangford Lock. This is a, a kind of a famous lock, uh, one for those Game of Thrones fans. Uh, the Winterfell Castle is there. So we're able to anchor right out in front of the castle and tour around where they filmed the, I think, first seasons first of season. Winterfell. Yeah, and actually Belfast, going back to even Belfast, they did a lot of filming of the last season of Game of Thrones there too, besides all the old ship work and titanic stuff there so okay so i'm i'm looking at your track and that's sort of that inside uh that inside lock that inside body of water is what is that where you're talking about yeah that's right there we go yeah Yeah, so those are i think uh kind of our little recommendations of some hidden gems uh in that area obviously there's there's so much to see but uh, that's what we saw and and that's what we recommend Hmm. okay one of the uh, crew members on my passage from the Cape Verde Islands to Grenada this winter is actually has actually has a boat up in the Scotland up in Scotland. He's sailed up there for years, so he says uh, he has lots of stories to tell about that, and I look forward to hearing from him when he gets on board. Yeah, wow, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I know uh, Scotland has a pretty rich sailing culture. Um, it might not be publicized a whole lot, but there are definitely some hardy sailors up there uh, because, well, yeah. You know, in Ireland, they've got a, and in Ireland, they've got a lot of canals as well. And I've had a friend that's chartered a, a, a canal boat several years in a row and, and has traveled quite a bit around Ireland on the canals. So, oh, I didn't know that. Fantastic. Yeah, they're very narrow boats, but it's got quite a canal system. And he's always enjoyed it. I've never done it, but he talks about it a lot. And hmm. Yeah. So those are the two places. Looks like you hopped in a few other places down the coast of Ireland as well. And uh, mostly, uh, where is this town here? Um, I can't read. Yeah, actually, that 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 ends our our Ireland journey because of uh, because of the COVID travel restrictions. Uh, We couldn't actually go into Ireland, the the Republic of Ireland. So, uh, okay, Okay. we didn't stop anywhere else uh, besides a brief anchorage uh, just to await a storm uh, while we continued south. Oh, okay. When you would anchor, would you get 
uh, officials that would come out and check on you, or would, would you just anchor and you could be, be incognito? Or was it was there a lot of police presence? Um, there wasn't really much police presence, and we were just uh, anchoring for like a night, and then you'd kind of move on that the next day for that reason. But um, yeah, there's not much police presence, and I think you know if you don't look suspicious. <laughs> Yeah. or something weird is going on they're not going to like bother you now this is in your original boat not the not the trimaran that you've got right that is correct yeah original uh monohull okay and then you head down through uh england and you do a little bit along the southern coast of england it looks like you went into i'm trying to figure the town southampton is that where you went into yes yeah, we went into Southampton uh, in the Solent for for the winter season, oh. uh, in the ham the Hamble, like is properly known as, and uh, we we wintered there and did uh, some refit work on our boat and I got into a bunch of projects as we stayed there. It actually snowed there once, and that was kind of exciting. I don't recommend wintering there, but. Um, it was still quite, uh, still a great time we had. Yeah. The, the dreary cold weather, that would be, I think the Mediterranean is starting to sound better or the Caribbean is sounding better at that point in time. So how long were you there? Was it, how, how many months did you spend then? Uh, in England, I think it was just a few months because we were only there for like six months, uh, that we were allowed to stay in the UK that's all of the UK, um, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and England. Um, so we just spent the rest of our time uh, in England and then explored along that coast there, like the Jurassic Coast, uh, before we went over um, to northern France. Okay. Now, that's not part of the Schengen anymore, so they had different rules and regulations than, than the Schengen then. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and as American citizens, uh, we get six months uh, without a visa. Okay, okay. Did In general, did you enjoy England? What was your impression of England? Oh, we loved it there. I mean, it's a gorgeous coastline, especially on the south. I can't speak for uh, that eastern shoreline looked a little harder to to cruise around but the southern shores were gorgeous i mean the peaks and the um, jurassic coast was beautiful and not to mention the yachting culture in the isle of Wight, the solent and the hamble river is that's the sailing mecca for, for english is. sailors so um you know you have large you know boat refitting areas there you have sailing publications that are based out of there tons of marinas training racing and yeah not to mention the racing the, the offshore racing scene in uh, out of the isle of Wight is just huge so uh, especially this double-handed uh offshore racing kind of class has become huge and we enjoyed watching uh, a lot of those starts oh okay yeah and it looks like it's very uh I'm just zooming in on Google Earth. looks like there's a lot of traffic around the Isle of Wight. Just uh, I don't know if it's commercial traffic or just uh, it doesn't look. I can't really tell on Google, Google Earth what type of traffic it is, but a lot of traffic through there. Yeah, yeah so Southampton is a big industrial port as well, so, which makes the, cha the sailing even more challenging, right? Because, yeah, they, they race 
in the Solent and around the Isle of Wight uh, on a daily basis, uh, but that not only the huge tides uh, and the big currents you have to deal with, uh, yeah, you have you have shipping traffic that is restricted to you know to their lanes. So um, yeah, it's I, I can see why that area breeds uh, really good sailors. Yeah, you learn you learn you learn to read current charts very quickly. One, all it takes is one time going against the current and the tides that you uh, you learn very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where we learned the most about uh, currents and tides has been in the UK. Like there, when we like we started our journey in Florida, and as you know, like in the Bahamas, there's really not much tide and not a lot of currents. We have our big Gulf Stream to deal with, but um, growing up there and learning sailing over there, like there just wasn't that much uh, to contend with. And then we traveled over to the UK and it was a whole different ball game. Yeah. And in the U S I guess you'd learn about currents mostly up in the Northwest. That's where I learned about currents because they have big tides up there and the farther North you go, the bigger the tides tend to get. So from Seattle on up to uh, Alaska, the tides get bigger and bigger as you go farther North. So you learn, right. you learn to read a lot of the currents. That's where I learned to read current charts more than anything else and of course the current switch all it takes is going at uh, a half a knot for six hours um, (laughs) (laughs) against the current then you say i'm not going to do this again i'll wait six hours and catch the other side of it so exactly so we learned a lot to to look at that a lot more intently and uh i mean even on the electronic charts like there's some helpful you know tips on they have like little arrows but if you go on to the the uk area it's all filled in whereas over here there wasn't as much filled in um and then northeast of the u.s and we're like but i could tell there's definitely a current why isn't it listed on the charts (laughs) (laughs) and then you hop over to france so let's talk about france for a little bit yeah we crossed the channel and um had a spent a really good month cruising the breton britain 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 region of of France, so that's yeah, kind of the northwest coast uh, along the Atlantic. Um, yeah, we we checked into Brest, which is a, a typical like kind of check-in area. Well, actually, I'll have to say more about this. Actually, it's an atypical check-in area because most sailors sailing from England did not have to check in, but uh, we were one of the first to uh, cross the channel in the new Brexit after post Brexit, right? <laughs> And uh, and get to experience the check-in process, which uh, luckily was was quite easy and and all all is well. But nonetheless, more uh, paperwork and and um, scheduling to do. Now you're on your way to the Mediterranean, and you check in in France, and there's all these canals that you can take across France. Did you consider trying to do the canals at all on your boat? No, no, no way. Um, I mean, I know a lot of sailors that do it, uh, particularly this time of year. It was not uh, because of COVID. It wasn't a good time to transit mm. the canals. There's okay. a lot of closures, a lot of canals were not dredged because of the, the stoppage of traffic. So a lot of sailboats were stuck in curious places. <laughs> okay. Best to avoid it then. Okay. And and from a lot of the sailors we did talk to that did canal trips, they would not recommend doing it in their own sailboat or like monohull they would if they were to do it again they said they just buy a canal boat and or rent one you can rent a, a thing that's because a boat that's made for a canal it has 
Uh, one is it uses air to cool the engine, so you're not sucking in seawater. And then two, uh, it has like a protected prop and it can, it, it can kind of run aground safely and push through weeds and kelp and, and all the grime. Um, mm -hmm. And it's much shallower draft. Like, obviously, just having a boat that's meant for that purpose is, is much better than trying to kind of push your, you know, uh, deep draft monohull with your mast down uh, through the canals. But yeah. we also like um, ocean sailing. So I think we're up for the challenge of going uh, the Bay of Biscay and down the along. We actually were excited to do the Portuguese trade winds. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, and that, that's our jam is the sailing. But, uh, no, it's it's great. The the canal scene is, is as you know, pretty huge in, in Europe, and it has its place and uh, definitely an exciting thing to do. But, no, nothing we considered. So we enjoyed France for, um, for the wine, baguette, cheap cheese, and, uh, once again, the sailing culture, you know, yeah. we found it quite different than the English sailing culture. Uh, the French, um, it was a much more, um, I don't know, how do I say it was, uh, authentic is the wrong word, but, um, I don't know, more gritty, maybe more like a, a gritty sailing culture you saw a lot of French boats that were not nearly as clean and polished as, as what we're used to seeing up in England, um, yet these sailors would just go take off, cross oceans like no big deal. You know, a special single-handed single sailing and the French culture is just huge. Um, and we really came to learn a bit more about that and, and really respect it. Okay, it looks like you hopped down the coast quite a bit. You spent quite a bit of, you did quite a few anchorages in France before you hopped across the bay. Yeah, we did. Uh, um, yeah, like I said, we explored that coast pretty thoroughly. Uh, well, I shouldn't say pretty thoroughly. We, we explored it for a month. Um, you can obviously spend seasons there. Uh, there's just so much good sailing. Um, but yeah, some of the hot spots, like we we really enjoyed um, sailing this this region near um, Kampar, uh, like the big city of Kampar, but. Uh, there's a small city called, uh, um, oh my gosh, was it Benaday? And the Oday the, River. Yeah, the Oday River. And you have the um, Isle of Glennon, these little islands that are that are out in the in the bay there. And this is a real like hotbed of French sailing. So a lot of French boat builders are here. Sailboat wow. races start from here. Well, we went to La Rochelle as well to visit the Omel factory. I think oh. we might have been over that last time, but yeah. Now that's a fairly shallow coast. So did you have uh, sea conditions that would build up quickly along the coast? No. No. Uh, no. Yeah, nothing. Nothing out of the ordinary from any other coast that okay. we had sailed. Okay. And then you hop over to Spain. Where did you make landfall in Spain? Well, we didn't. Oh, you didn't? You just came down there and turned around and went on out then, huh? Yeah, yeah. So we did a, a passage from La Rochelle across the Bay of Biscay. Um, and then we just we yeah, decided that the weather was good enough to just keep going. And so we just kept going. So we rounded, yeah, the Finisterre coast around uh, La Coruña. 
and um, and that's when yeah, Amanda said we're super excited around that that coast and hit those Portuguese trades. That was our kind of our first trade wins, and oh my god, for for a long time. So <laughs> what time? Uh, what time of year was this then? What 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 time of the year was this when you were going down? It was uh, spring springtime. Spring, yeah. Mm-hmm. So April, May, that sort of time. Yeah, and the and the trades were pumping. So. Uh, yeah, once you round that Finisterre coast and you, it's like shoots and ladders. Uh, you just catch the beginning of that shoot, and we set up the pole and went wing on wing, downwind for like three days. We didn't have to touch the sail configuration, which was just just bliss. And then we had a race that went right through us. That was really <laughs> fun to see. Yeah, and it looks to me like you hopped on into Lagos, Portugal. Is that right? Yeah, that was our, I believe, our only stop when we went to, no, we did go to Porto Mayo as well. Um, and, yeah, that was fun. We, I think we missed uh, missed a lot of stopping grounds there, um, but we did enjoy our time in Portugal. We were just really keen to find, like, warm weather and clear blue uh, waters to dive in. So we went to the Balearics kind of as soon as we could and just spent <laughs> You know, we're waiting for weather windows to go through Gibraltar. Did you get a good weather window to get through Gibraltar? Because I see you headed straight across to Gibraltar uh, from from Portugal then. I think the important thing is not the weather. It's that we avoided the orcas, the orcas. <laughs> that attack ah, your rudder. Okay. We were trying to, yeah, uh, strategize on, at the time, like, if you, like, hugged the coastline or maybe the, you know, the side of Gibraltar was more favored at that time. And, I mean, there's, everything's gone out the window now. But, um, yeah, we did what we could, what we thought was a good idea to avoid the orcas. I've been studying up on that. And what, I, what I've learned or what, it, what I've heard is they're following the tuna up the coast, and they're basically following the tuna, and if you need to avoid the tuna, the tuna to avoid the orcas, is is that sort of what you were figuring out as well? Uh, yeah, that's the that's the gist of it. But I mean, I think we still need to get our people with those people, you know, their people. <laughs> we have like a meeting of the minds. Uh, I don't know if we can get the tuna people involved as well. But, <laughs> did you? Uh, did, I think. Did you have the same fear when you crossed uh, the Atlantic uh, coming out of Gibraltar later on? Did, were you as worried? Because I've been looking at most the, uh, m- when I've been looking at the boat attacks, it looks like most of them are a little north of the Straits of Gibraltar, not so much south of the Straits of Gibraltar. Is that what you found out as well? Yeah, the pro- there haven't been as many attacks uh, on the south side, that's for sure. So going out... It's just getting through Gibraltar. That yeah. was the scary part. And because they've gone inside as well now, um, but they've gone on the south side. I think it was fairly recently when we had gone through, there was an attack. So once we were really way past that, we could calm down a little bit. But I know we were like tacking out of uh, the Straits of Gibraltar, and that made me so nervous <laughs> because I'm like, oh, the longer we sit in this water, like we're going to find one of these orcas. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's something that I worry about because I'll be going out through the straits as well. But I guess you just have to accept the risks of sailing to do it. So, yeah, yeah it's just one other thing, and uh, it's kind of a roll of the dice, I think, because it just doesn't seem like anyone can find a real 
uh, solution or reasoning behind, you know, who gets attacked and who doesn't. So. Yeah. I did see a boat in Almiramar this last summer that had had its rudder attacked. And you can see, I mean, this two-inch stainless steel stock is bent at a 90-degree angle. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing the power that they have. And it was this was a big boat, but it had a skeg, uh, a skeg rudder which seems to be a lot more vulnerable than uh, than an aft-hung rudder like I have. But I don't know. You just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, it, it Just generally with our size ships, no matter what rudder configuration or material or yada, 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 yeah, it's no match for the power of these animals. Um, yeah. they've They've ripped up every type of rudder and keel. Don't forget that. So, um, you're at their yeah. mercy. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, just try not to think too much about it and <laughs> just uh, be on the ready and make sure you have a tow plan yeah, um, some kind ready of plan. to go, you know, like, you know, who to call when, if you do get attacked and where you can tow to and what your, you know, insurance costs are, uh, for all of that work. Yeah. I guess I should clarify that with my insurance company before I go out there. So find out. Yeah. Yeah, it could be a really hefty tow bill. <laughs> yeah. Hey, okay, so you head right on up the coast. You don't stop hardly anywhere until you get to uh it looks like Formentera. Is that about right? Yeah, we had a great warm reception Formentera. Uh that's known for uh for uh sunbathing in the nude. So that was uh, <laughs> a, 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 a a fun um, approach after being at sea for so many days and, and seeing just uh, all the holiday makers out enjoying the water, enjoying the, the Balear culture. Like it was exactly what we were looking for in terms of escaping the cold that we had been in for the, the previous year. Now, do you have a heater on your boat to keep you warm? We do. Okay. Yeah. We do. That's one thing we really strongly believe in is being uncomfortable when you're hot or, or cold, rather, is to, and for the health of the boat, especially, because when you're in cold, damp environments, it's just not really good for the boat. So we have a, a heater aboard and we don't have an AC aboard. So, what kind of heater? What's the fuel for the heater then? Well, it's a diesel air heater. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then also to buy a good one, like a well-respected brand, we did buy the knockoffs, and it, it did uh, have an issue. So I know they're cheaper, and it's a lot easier to keep replacing with cheap another cheap unit. But um, spend the money on a good, uh, good brand. What brand did you guys use then? Uh, on our previous boat, we went with Bulbasto, okay. and then on our current boat, we installed a Wallace. Okay. Okay, but in the tropics, you really don't need that. But in the cold climbs that you've been going in, you definitely need a heater then. Yeah, I mean, that's just our comfort level. You can always you know, try to do it without, but uh, we just found that it's a lot more comfortable if you get, like, if you go on a hike during the day or if you're going outside, you can spend it, you can tolerate, you know, daytime cold temperatures. But then at the end of the day, you want to come home and you want to be warm and dry. Um, so it's a nice you know, to be at home at, in that kind of environment. But uh, so for our list, it's particularly essential, which is why we installed it on, on the new boat as well, because if we're, we've actually been running it for the past few days here in the Chesapeake, because 
uh, it's been damp and cold and we're like, we can't wait to get to the Caribbean, but this can last us for a little while before we get there. But when you're hot, you can, you know, usually the environment you're in, you can just go jump in the water and cool off. And then at nighttime it cools down. So it's a lot easier to get cool, but it's not as easy to get warm. Yeah. 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 You can always cool down by jumping in the water and then uh, jumping in again and jumping in again. But yeah, uh, you're right. <laughs> Oh, that's right. So but especially yeah, on the water, it just can get so cold. It just feels intolerable. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time hopping around Ibiza, Ibiza or Ibiza, as they say. But uh, so how long did you actually spend in Ibiza then? Because I'm looking at the track and it's going all over the place on your website. Yeah, <laughs> we we ended up uh, spending well, all of our time, uh, the rest of our Schengen time in um, the Balearics in general, because we also went, made it to Mallorca and a B, um, and uh, Menorca as well. But we spent more time in Ibiza because our we had sailing friends, um, for American friends that were that made it also from England all the way down here, sailing Sonder, um, Phil and Roxy, and we were really excited to sh- show them. Uh, how wonderful it was, and so we'd cruise with them for a while um, as much as we could. Yeah, because they, they did a nonstop passage all the way from England to Formentera, where we met them with uh, American flags waving and beers at the ready. <laughs> yeah, it was also July 4th, so we were a little more American than, than usual. Yeah, I'm looking <laughs> at your track, and, and you uh, it looks like you stopped... Uh, uh, is it Kavaikaya on Menorca? Um, on, yeah, on Menorca. And then you went to a Mahon Menorca, it looks like. But you only went to that uh, one. Yeah, that one, on, I... yeah the, you only went to the one anchorage in Mahon Menorca, which I was at summer before last. And you didn't go. Did you go into the town at all, or did you just stop there and then continue on? Oh, that was where we checked out of Schengen. So uh, we spent time in in the city there. Um, well, okay. Let me ask you a question. Where where was the customs dock that you actually checked out of? Because I was supposed to check in there, and I went and knocked on doors all over the place and talked to port ah. police, and they said, "Oh, we don't know, we don't know." And I could because I last summer before last when I came over from Italy because of the COVID nonsense, I was supposed to check in. And everywhere we went, they said, oh, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. So we ended up not doing anything. So where did you actually check out? (laughs) Oh, it took some work because we needed to check out. Um, There was a source online. It was another sailing blog, and they posted a map of exactly where the station was. And it... And it was very hard to find because it's in this like a door that's not really labeled and it's around where the police station is. And then when you go in, you have to talk to be like, I need to check out. So you had to know exactly where to go. Was it on the uh, waterfront or was it by the elevator that goes up to the old town? It no, was... it's, it's, it's in the middle of the old town. It's uh, <laughs> translated. It's called the, the commissary, uh, local. Like the local commissary, I think, of the region. It's across from the Policia, Policia Nacional, and um, had to go like around the corner and through a door. And... Right, it's pretty close to the city center. Um, yeah, a bit off of the the docks and whatnot. But right, you have to find the right office. But once we did, it was fine. They ushered us in the office, and we worked with an immigration officer, and 
and everything they was counted normal. our days. Yeah, they counted <laughs> our days. It said, oh, great. You're on the 89th day. Perfect. Okay. So this was right on the waterfront then? No, no this is uh, up up uh, in the near the city center. So where you actually take the elevator or take the long walk up and get up to the, the main part of the city then? Is that what we're talking about? Correct. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't. I wouldn't have imagined it was up there for a customs office. That seems very strange, but that's where it was. Okay, well, I got away with it, so I guess I don't need to worry about it at this point. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, we were just needing to check out, so we had to make a point. That's the last spot you can. Like we were going to start heading east, so it, uh, we needed to do that in order to check into the, you know, get our Schengen days over. So. Huh. Well, okay. Yeah, because I knocked on police doors. I went along the waterfront. I went everywhere. And uh, <laughs> everybody said, no, no, we don't do that. No, no, no. I said, well, okay. They certainly did not make it easy. That's for sure. So, <laughs> Well, you tried, and that's what counts, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you, then you head straight on over from there to Albania. Is that right? Right. Yes, that's correct. All right, and we covered a lot of that last in the last podcast, so we don't need to re mm-hmm. re talk about that because you talked about going up the coast of Albania and then checking into Slovenia. Let's start from there now because that's because uh, I'm looking at your track and it looks like you go straight across Italy. Is that when you uh, got a different boat at that point in time? Yeah, we went to Venice because that was kind of, you know, you have sailing goals. And one of our goals we had heard, you can, you know, put your like bring your boat into Venice. And you can also bring your dinghy in some of the canals, not the Grand Canal. But uh, I mean, it just seemed like such a cool concept to me. And so we really wanted to make it happen. Uh, So then we put the boat in. um, What was that? Uh, marina called uh let's click pull fun story before we even got to that marina we're sailing oh. into the venice as you know venice is like uh kind of like an inner inter coastal kind of protected zone out from the ocean um but they've had a lot of erosion recently and with flooding. Uh, with flooding and with rising sea levels they're having to kind of combat this so their city doesn't go underwater so we we enter there's like one of three entrances to the kind of Venice whole like intercoastal area. And we go in one of the entrance and, uh, and it's like, it's a big, huge entrance and we're looking at the chart and like, we're looking straight ahead and we're like, well, we, we, like should, you, see we should see it. the channel, but all we can see was just this yellow. this yellow barrier across the entire canal entrance. And what it is is they've, they've built a, um, like this flood control system where in the events of like big storms and storm surge, they can put up this kind of barrier and protect the whole intercoastal area. Um, and they happen to be testing it the exact <laughs> time we arrive. And n- nothing is kind of denoted on the chart. So no. so we were very confused. But luckily, there were lots of police boats around to, <laughs> to tell us that we can't go through. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then we just had to sit in the channel for about two hours and tack back and forth. There's uh, a lot of wind. So we could, I think there's like 20, 20 knots of wind. So we could just tack back and forth. And, until they lowered these great floodgates. But uh so yeah, that was just a whole interesting experience as uh, as an entrance to Venice itself. So we went across both of the sides to the island and then across to the other side. Then, 
because I'm, I'm looking at it, and I've gone through that, and it looks like to me like on the on the northeast side of that channel, there's actually a a lock that you can slide through. Uh, oh yeah, but um, but during this time of testing, they just weren't allowing any boats uh, to go through. Okay. okay. Yeah, and what, so what, in other words, when those floodgates are up, you can't everything's up. Yeah, yeah there, there's no. Yeah, you have to wait till it's closed. And 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 now I think that they've tested it. They have a more like regular schedule, um, and that's posted, and it's it's more normal. So. Right. We googled it later and found out like there was no. We wouldn't have known that they were testing that day. Yeah, and I wouldn't expect anyone to have this similar issue. It was just a a really kind of a fun, exciting entrance <laughs> to. To, to sail through where you think you should be able to sail, and then there's water. this giant barrier for entry. <laughs> yeah, and I've stayed at that same marina that you stayed at. I can't remember the oh, name of it. Oh, Chertosa, no way. Yeah. Great marina. Well, I've stayed there. I've also stayed at the Yacht Club, and also uh, I stayed on um, on uh, on Murano Island, right on the Grand Canal in Murano Island. I side-tied there. I couldn't believe that nobody kicked me off. I side-tied there for about three nights, and nobody bothered me. Yeah. No yeah. way. No, that's great. With, with your, your current boat? Yeah, with the boat I'm in, yeah. Oh, that is so cool. Wow. Yeah, the Yacht Club was really cool, because you know, you're right there, right literally across from uh, San Marcos Square on, uh, what's the name of the island? It's uh, San Giorgio Island. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, San Giorgio, with the big church on the island. There's a, there's the, uh, the Venice Yacht Club, and uh, wow. it was more expensive than the other marina, but it was pretty cool to stay there. It was really cool. Uh, isn't it such a like? I think it's a totally cool destination for cruisers uh, to get to Venice because it's. I mean, it's it's a city that's built for us. You know, it's on the water. Yeah. And, you know, you said you can't take your dinghy down the uh, the Grand Canal. I did. Nobody stopped me. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, what, yeah, I think what Amanda was saying is that uh, I, I guess police, we're talking to locals, they, they just frown upon it. Yeah, there's no exact <laughs> like, regulation. But, uh, but yeah. No, well, there's a lot of traffic you have to avoid. I mean, you're, you're I mean, they're my tiny little eight-foot dinghy going about three miles an hour at the most, and all these boats are going by me, throwing up their big wakes as they go by me. So, Yeah. But, uh, and, but then I also took them through all they t- take all the gondolas and actually went back in the back where they have the hospital, and the emergency room for a hospital is a, uh, is a big dock where boats can pull in and unload and pull out, which was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we thought that was really cool, too. Just all the infrastructure that's, you know, built for people that live on the water. It just, you know, it's like cruisers, but land cruisers, you know, that are, they live on the water in the house, but, you know, they have to think of, you know, how do we get rid of our trash or how do you you deliver um, groceries or packages and they have you know the boats for these purposes and it's just kind of cool to see like a ups boat <laughs> yeah yeah all right so let's uh we're coming up on an hour now and i've got an extra appointment i've got to get to in a few minutes but let's let's talk about what you did after venice did you- ah, so we put the boat up, boat for sale in while we were in venice ah, so okay um yeah we listed it privately 
Uh, and during the time, I mean, I think everyone in the, in the industry realized that, you know, it's pretty much a seller's market at that point. So, you know, we got full price offers and it was actually sight unseen um, purchaser as well. Uh, the buyer was a Spanish buyer. He had been familiar with our YouTube. Um, so he really loved the boat from what he saw from our YouTube and then had the survey and haul out uh, done at the Venice Marina uh, Tridosa right there, actually. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah then, and from there, I mean, we, we knew we wanted to start uh, some sort of offshore sailing business and performance multi-hulls. So search was on for for a boat that would fit our, our needs. And luckily we found one not far away, the south coast of France. Uh, there was this beautiful Neil 45 sitting for sale. Uh, so we rented a car and drove over to check it out. <laughs> All right. So that's how you ended up with the newer boat. So we may want to come back at another episode and catch your crossing because I want to pick your brain about uh, your crossing since I'm going to be doing it in January. So, but... Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to chat more about uh, you know our transition from monohull to multi-hull and what we've learned and what some of the differences are and, yeah, what our program's all about. That's great. It sounds like another episode we'll be doing. And I'll make sure I, I hit the record button right away this next time. So, <laughs> All right. All right. Oh, man, it's been great chatting with you today. Thank you. Good talking to you. You take care, okay? Yeah, you too. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. The website for Sailing in the Mediterranean and beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.